you had the eighth edition of the Crypto Super 500 list. If you go back a couple of years, 75% of the mining hash rate was in China. The US dollar started out as proof of work with mining and minting of gold and silver based coins, and then it switched to proof of stake. Do you really need a central bank digital currency in a place like the US? If the central bank digital currency has retail wallets, this is going to impact negatively the deposit structure of the commercial banks. NFTs, non-fungible tokens continue to be big news, decentralized finance, DeFi. The CFTC for commodities, futures trading, the IRS of course, and the SEC. Also the banking regulators, potentially the FIDC. Welcome to the OrionX download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas in technology that are changing the world. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Orion X Download Podcast. With me today is Steve Perno, my colleague, who, as you know, is deep into crypto and quantum and HPC and other critical technologies. Steve, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. Doing great, Shaheen, and thanks for having me. And we'll have a nice little chat today. Right. I'm reminded that we should say up front that what you're about to hear is not, nor is it intended to be financial, legal, or any other kind of advice. <laughs> Your mileage varies, etc., etc. And that sort of is a good segue into the crypto topic. And maybe that's all we talk about today. You had the eighth edition of the Crypto Super 500 list a couple of months ago. You've been doing it for quite a while now. So we have a good historical record of how things have changed. We certainly want to talk about Bitcoin and the fluctuations and the valuation models, and you have your own valuation model that has done quite well. We want to talk about Ethereum and how they're changing their consensus algorithms. NFTs, non-fungible tokens continue to be big news, decentralized finance, DeFi, stable coins, central bank digital currencies, regulations. Let's talk about all of that. And I know your report touches on some of these anyway. So set us up, please. Okay, that's great. Well, let me talk first about our methodology for the crypto super lists. We put them out twice a year. And because it is a specialized form of supercomputing, mining these cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular, we align with the two big supercomputer conferences that happened in the Europe in June, always held in Germany, and then in the, the US one that's always in November, shortly before Thanksgiving. So the reports come out twice a year in conjunction with those large supercomputing conferences. Now for our methodology, we only consider proof of work mine coins because those are the only ones that use significant supercomputing power. There are a number of other consensus algorithms that people use. The most notable of these is proof of stake, and you can think of proof of stake as similar to owning shares in a company, although these are more decentralized kinds of organizations. In fact, the US dollar started out as proof of work with mining and minting of gold and silver based coins, and then it switched to proof of stake with paper certificates against gold and silver holdings. And now it's it's more an airdrop in a way. Banks <laughs> create money when new loans are made. So that's how it's evolved in the US. But as we look across the cryptocurrencies that have the highest valuation and then just select for proof of work, we find that the mining protocols and hash rates vary in very large degree between them. And the far and away largest hash rate is for Bitcoin. It's now at around 200 exahashes per second. So just as supercomputing has entered the exadomain, 
the cryptocurrency mining has been in the exit domain for some time because the hashes are very, very simple calculations. And I'm just checking right now. The hash rate at this moment is literally 199.989 exahashes per second. It's identically 200 exahashes per second, which of course is 10 to the 18th. And those hashes are just kind of a cryptographic search problem, a little lottery that gets performed. Most of these coins require ASICs to be profitably mined, but some are used or mined with GPUs as well. Now, the whole point of this exercise is to compare how much economic value different mining pools are generating. And also as part of that, we'll identify if, where we can, which nations the mining pools are headquartered in. So the big change that I remember was when China took steps to limit or ban, essentially, mining of Bitcoin. And that had an impact, but also an impact that was absorbed by the system as per expectation. So I'm interested in the dynamics of that as well as you described this. So what had happened is that actually, if you go back a couple of years, 75% of the mining hash rate was in China at one point. And if you go back to even early this year, about two thirds of the mining hash rate was in China. And that is because of the very low cost electricity that's available in China, some of which is generated in a dirty fashion with coal and some of which is generated in a very clean fashion with hydroelectric power, particularly on a seasonal basis. So there are four key provinces that are, are producing most of the hash rate. But China, for various reasons, and we believe the most critical reason was their desire to promote their own CBDC, central bank digital currency, which has already gone into significant trial and usage there. And they wanted to make more space for it, we believe. So in mid-June, a year ago, so just over a year ago, around the time we were putting out our report a year prior, they came out with basically a total ban on mining. And it all shut down at midnight on one particular day, which was June 19th, I believe, 2021. And you could sit and watch the blockchain. And right after midnight, instead of the blocks coming out every 10 minutes, it took 70 minutes for the next block to come out. And hash rate dropped by close to 50%. But then in the next few months, it bounced back very nicely. And it's gone on to new highs since that time. So at one time, it had been down around 150, 160 exahashes prior to the ban. And it dropped to the low 100s, but now it's recovered and gone to new highs since then. So that discrepancy when block time suddenly went from 10 minutes to 70 minutes is because the difficulty of the hash lags the available hash rate. So difficulty is something that gets adjusted only every... 2016 blocks, which is about two weeks. And so what happened is that basically as the hash rate dropped out, the difficulty wasn't going to adjust for a while. And you basically had fewer people searching you know, to win what's essentially a cryptographic lottery. But eventually some, somebody's going to win it. Mm. And eventually other people are going to add to their hash rate. Other miners not in China will add to their hash rate. And what happened was that the US became the dominant source of hash power as China dropped away. So what are the rankings now in terms of hash power around the world? So now it's US is number one. For a little while, Kazakhstan was number two. Mm. But apparently hash rate has bounced back in China. And there appears to be some uh, fair amount of gray market or illegal mining that's still going on. And so this data is a little bit old. But as of early this year, it seemed like they were up to about a 20% share again. Hmm. Uh, this is a 
data that comes out of the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index, which is out of the Center for Alternative Finance at the University of Cambridge. And it's not completely accurate because it's based on monitoring for the largest Bitcoin pools. But they, at that time, said that the U.S. had 38% share, China 21%, and Kazakhstan 13%. You mentioned the Cambridge Center and electricity use. So we should also talk about the climate aspect of cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin in particular. And I detect a whole bunch of inaccurate information out there in the media that blurs the perspective. Well, actually, let's, let's just switch to that topic. You know, most electricity is used for consumption. It's used to run your air conditioner, run your refrigerator, run your lights. And as such, you could say you generate electricity, it's burned, it's all consumed. In the case of Bitcoin, you're actually creating something of value. And Bitcoin has persisted in value and grown in value during its lifetime. So it's important to keep in mind that most of the electricity that goes into the Bitcoin mining process is not devoted to encoding the transactions. It's actually encoded to mining the Bitcoin itself. Uh, more than 90% goes to the production of Bitcoin. And so if you measure it against the transactions generated, it's really not the correct metric to being used. In addition, it appears that about 50% or more of the Bitcoin mining industry electricity inputs are from sustainable sources. And the total usage of all global energy, according to the Bitcoin Mining Council report in April of this year, is one-sixth of 1% of all energy sources. Now, that includes both electricity and other energy sources that operate machinery. And then if you look at CO2 emissions, it's less than one part in a thousand, less than 0.1%, again, according to the Bitcoin Mining Council. There have been other estimates, but if you just look at the electricity share, according to Cambridge Center, it's been roughly in the one half of 1% of, of global level. And it turns out if you do a comparison to the finance industry as a whole and all of their electricity consumption, it's not out of line with what the finance industry does around the globe. I'll just get back to our methodology and say what we do is we look at the top coins and we see of the proof of work coins, we can calculate how many are being produced a day, what's the price, and therefore what's the economic value that's being produced on a daily basis for those top coins. In our case, there are half a dozen that are initial candidates and that we can extrapolate that to an annual economic value. And then we have to put some kind of cutoff and then we look at pools that are mining these different coins. So that it turns out the top six coins are Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, which was a, a fork off of the original Bitcoin, and Ethereum Classic, which is a fork away from the Ethereum. And actually only two coins out of the six have mining pools that have over 200 million annual run rate. So that's where we put our cutoff. And if you add up the production, you find that when we issued this report in June that Bitcoin and Ethereum were both producing about 9 to 10 billion per year of economic value in their production, and that they were about 95% of this value being produced out of these six coins. Now, Bitcoin and Ethereum prices have dropped considerably over the past month. So now if you were to calculate the run rate, it would be more like 7 billion, 6 to 7 billion per annum economic value coming out of each of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, what I find interesting is that there are some 20,000 coins out there and only really six of them make the cutoff in terms of significant energy use. And of those, 
really only two are material. And of the two, one of them is changing the algorithm. So yes. it's really Bitcoin, isn't it? And maybe a few others. It's really coming down more and more to Bitcoin. In past lists, we've had three, four or five coins that were making the cut for the large mining pools. But if things have been consolidating more and more. And Ethereum kind of caught up in the last list to Bitcoin in terms of its annual production, but we don't see that going forward. First of all, out of the 19,000 or so cryptocurrencies, only about 70, as far as I can see, are proof of work. Almost all of them have other Byzantine fault tolerance mechanisms, typically proof of stake, but many other variants. And as a result, they don't do that much mining. And Bitcoin has just attracted more and more of the mining power. So if you look at the next closest hash rate after Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin's up in the hundreds of exahashes, and Bitcoin Cash is around one exahash. And actually, you find out that when it has one half percent of the hash rate, it turns out that not so coincidentally, it only has about one half of one percent of the market cap. So there's a close connection between the amount of security that you generate with hash rate and the value. Now, you can't always directly compare these things because they use different algorithms, even the ones that use proof of work. But in the case of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, the algorithms are identical and the supply emission is essentially identical as well. Now, Ethereum is on this track to Ethereum 2.0, and this has been a very long multi-year process. And there are several reasons for it. There are several motivators for this, and one of the largest ones is scaling. And so in order to get more scaling, they've done a couple of things. One is sharding, where they're going to actually have multiple subchains, if you will, 64 sections or shards within the chain. They're going to have roll-ups, which is like a, a second layer, somewhat analogous to the lightning that you have in the Bitcoin space. But then they're also doing this shift to proof of stake. That was originally going to be done two or three years ago, and it keeps getting delayed because they've had a lot of hiccups in, in rolling out the 2.0 implementations, but they do have the alternative chain up and running. They've done testing on it. They've merged that back in. And uh, there's something called the, the merge that's going to come ahead, which will be a full merge. And as part of that, there's something called a difficulty bomb. And a difficulty bomb will shut down proof of work and it'll force everything over to their proof of stake. And in that consensus, you have validators They'd have to put up 32 ETH or minimum, and then they have the power to validate transaction blocks. And those validators are going to collect a yield. And that yield right now is ranged in the 4 to 6% range. Uh, and that yield is paid in Ethereum itself. And that may happen by the end of this year. It was going to happen most recently. It was going to happen already last month. But again, it got delayed, and the earliest that it would happen would be next month, but more likely in the fall is, is what people are saying. So when that happens, Ethereum hash rate goes away, and it's, it's not going to be a candidate for the next list in November if they actually implement the merge and the difficulty bomb before then. So when Ethereum first came up, and its claim to fame was smart contracts, and that it had an easier way of building more sophisticated smart contracts, and that has been also, the ability to do other coins based on its technology and led to the initial coin offering craze that was probably continues to carry on. But also, that has led to NFTs and has led to decentralized finance, DeFi, both of which are under a lot of scrutiny and doubt these days. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the first wave that came out of Ethereum were 
you know, the idea was to do smart contracts and to implement decentralized finance broadly in all kinds of ways. But really, the first things that happened were ICOs, coin offerings, and those came out with various consensus algorithms and various utilities proposed. And we've, it turned out to be a, a field for a lot of speculative offerings in a typical case. Then later, we saw things like initial exchange offerings, which is really a kind of a specialized coin that sits on an exchange. The one that's been most successful has been Binance. So it's almost like a private corporate coin that you use in that environment. There was talk about having tokenization of real assets, uh, real estate in particular. Some of that has happened, although it hasn't progressed as rapidly as we thought it might have. There's certainly been other blockchains that have been used in finance for trying to do things like transactions of securities and so forth, and, and that does proceed. But the, the latest really hot arenas for Ethereum and for smart contracts built on Ethereum were NFTs and decentralized finance. And within the NFTs, it was primarily been the art space, kind of, you know, crypto punk uh, styles of art, board apes and the like. And that's been a real boom and bust market. But it's also attracted some interest in from people like the NBA, their hot shots and little uh, video clips of, you know, basketballs getting dunked. And Disney is, has certainly been doing some things as, as well. So NFTs are going to be around. They've been a bit of a speculative art domain, but there are a lot of other potential applications from sports and entertainment. Exactly. I think the big point to me is that art is just one application of NFTs, but in the common parlance, it sounds like art is the only application of NFTs. And for many people, they equate the two together. And that's not quite the potential of the technology. Right. Now, DeFi is a little bit like, oh, I don't know, payday lending. What it is, is you can stake some coin. And in many cases, a coin will be created specifically to support some DeFi algorithm, which is an automated trading algorithm, or sometimes called automated market making algorithm. And you'll pledge that coin into the algorithm and there'll be trading pairs and it all happens in an automated fashion on an exchange. And if you pledge your coin, you can get some yield on that. And these really outrageous levels of, of yield have been offered in many cases. And of course, there's no regulation for all of this. It just happens on these exchanges. And it's you'll see a white paper and an algorithm, but you don't really know exactly what's going on. And then you may find that there are substantial fees to get one of those coins. It, the Ethereum gas fees got very high, and then you'd have fees to enter into one of these contracts. And so it turned out to be something that you didn't want to do with relatively small amounts of capital. But very active trading, you could stake for yield. And some of the yields advertised were really excessive, you know, double digit and triple digit percentages on annualized basis. Wow. And, and as one can imagine, there was a lot of, has been a lot of instability and we've, we've, we've seen some of these just disappear or get rug pulled. There's been a lot of hacking where mm -hmm. people kind of figured how to fool, trick the algorithm and to do trades, you know, against the algorithm and to, to withdraw capital. So it's really been the wild west. All of that shows that if you have these ongoing pre-programmed, it's hard to do those in a way that remains stable and is immune from misbehavior or use outside of its scope. But the other thing is also with these DeFi systems is how easy is it to take your gains out and convert them to another 
currency because that's also limited in some cases, right? Sure. And so people would find that when they wanted to take it out, there'd be a lot of slippage. Right. And you could get, you'll get a run on the bank, right? So if the trading pair, one side of it is not performing well, then there's a liquidity imbalance. People might start withdrawing. You get a kind of run on the bank situation. And then if you have a stable coin involved, then the stable coin will lose its peg to the dollar or whatever currency it's pegged to. And this is what we saw in the in the Luna blow up. Several of them have been under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into stable coins and central bank digital currencies. Same thing, kind of a thing. What is the latest on that? Well, stable coins have gotten a lot of interest from central banks around the world. They're all studying it. The one that's farthest along is is China, certainly, and they have implemented theirs. There are a few other small countries, such as the Bahamas, that have implemented theirs. These are digital fiat. They're tied to whatever the national currency is. In the case of Bahamas, they they tie themselves to the U.S. dollar anyway. So, so they've got a sand dollar. And obviously in China, it's, it's tied to the yuan. So it's a one-to-one relationship with the, the yuan. And they have had a been rolling this out to millions and millions of users at this point. And they already had a very active mobile wallet-based payment culture with mm-hmm. Alipay and other providers. So the, the population was ready, I think, to, to receive this. Now, I, I don't expect that the U.S. dollar or the euro will implement very soon, but it does seem like it's rather inevitable. There's certainly uh, benefits to the central banks and to the governments to have another way to put money out to people. We saw this in COVID where you know the U.S., Put out a lot of relief funds. The government, in they had to go through the IRS to do that. This would be another channel. They could go through a, a Fed coin or a Fed dollar, whatever it would be. Now, one of the important considerations is how does it affect your banking system? Because if the central bank digital currency has wallets, the retail wallets, where individual users maintain an account at the Federal Reserve, this is going to impact negatively the deposit structure at the commercial banks. So it's more likely that we'll see something, if this is implemented, we'll see something that's hierarchical in the same way that our current monetary system in the U.S. is, and then with the euro or U.K. or really anywhere in the world, it's hierarchical where Mm. you have central bank money, reserve money, and then you have the money that the banks emit. So one question is, do you really need a central bank digital currency in a place like the U.S. since there are already a few stable coins that are pegged to the dollar that are performing a similar task? For the U.S. in particular, that's a very strong possibility. I mean, what's happening now is that there's been a lot of attention by the government. They have, you know, the White House put out their directive. All the relevant agencies have been asked to put together plans and really stable coins were at the center of that. And so we're going to see those regulated in the way that money market funds, for example, are regulated so that they can adhere to full reserve accounting, that they've got strong backing and that they're not going to break their peg, not going to break the buck, as the saying goes. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, if you have, you know, several substantial stable coins that meet the regulations from the Federal Reserve and the banking system, they may just decide to to go with those Mm. and not roll their own. Right. Although there's also the aspect of 
the positive spin is econometrics, the negative spin is surveillance that provides real-time data in a comprehensive way that having a CBDC will enable the government to take advantage of. And there's also that aspect. And, and actually, there are both good and bad aspects to that. I mean, it will be useful for the government to have much more detailed information about spending patterns and microeconomic behavior. This will be preserved on the blockchain. But the question is, what level of anonymity or pseudo-anonymity will there be? So if they collect that data and they only use it in an anonymous fashion, for example, you would want them to do with your health data, right, which is protected mm -hmm. under HIPAA. Well, mm -hmm. if they want to take the data and anonymize it because they want to improve health outcomes, well, you can imagine them doing similar things in order to study the behavior of the economy. But the downside is if they look at individual behavior, which they will certainly do under court order in the U.S. But in China, there's great concern about their social credit system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they look at more detail how people are spending their money and start to keep a government credit score or social credit score based on people's behavior and maybe freeze their wallets and not allow them access to their money if the government doesn't like their behavior. So that's where the concerns come in. Right on, right on. So let's conclude with regulations and any other topics that we haven't covered. Where is the state of regulations? And one challenge there is just who's got jurisdiction over what between the SEC and the IRS and this, that, and the other, like 15 different agencies in the U.S. alone, and then in the global scene. Right. In the U.S., there are probably three or four agencies that matter the most. The CFTC for commodities, futures trading, the IRS, of course, and the SEC. Also, the banking regulators, potentially the FIDC. So the U.S., Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are legal in general terms. For example, Bitcoin is seen by the CFTC as if it were a commodity, and it trades on the future exchanges, and it's regulated by the CFTC as commodities are regulated and as future trading and commodities is regulated. The IRS sees Bitcoin as an asset, and it taxes it in terms of capital gains, short-term and long-term capital gains. So right now, and this is rather inconvenient for people, any transaction you make with Bitcoin in principle recognizes a capital gain or capital loss. And so it makes it very difficult to spend Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee, right? If you bought that Bitcoin at a certain price and then you spend $5 worth of it, you know, and maybe you bought it for $2, you've got a $3 capital gain. And, and that's a real pain to keep track of, right? But that's how the IRS sees it as an asset that gets traded and should get reported for short-term or long-term capital gains, as the case may be. Uh, there is a bill that's been introduced in Congress that would put a set-aside or an exception for small amounts. And it's similar to the idea of when you travel to Europe, you buy some euros, you spend your euros, you don't worry about the euro exchange rate. You don't say that every time I spend a euro that you know I've got to declare a capital loss or capital gain because the euro fluctuated in price. Right? Coincidentally, one euro is now one dollar, but been on the way down. So the exception would be in the proposed legislation, $200 per transaction. So you'd be able to make small transactions without having to you know, report to the IRS a capital gain. So we'll, we'll see if that goes anywhere. It's part of a, a larger set of regulations that Congress is looking at. The next one to talk about is the 
FIDC, and their concern is twofold, one with banks and second with stable coins. They would like to regulate stable coins. It's not clear that they'll be able to, but they'd like to regulate them as money market funds. They're going to have to fight probably with the SEC over that. But then the second consideration is the if a bank holds Bitcoin for a pliant, and there the control of the currency has already issued regulation that says that banks are allowed to custody Bitcoin for clients. Now, the big question is, what if a bank wants to hold Bitcoin on its books itself? And right now, that's really a function of not only Federal Reserve regulations, but uh, global banking regulations. The Bank of International Settlements has made a very tiny carve out that has essentially said that a bank can hold up to 1% of its assets in Bitcoin on its own book. So, and they just did that quite recently. It's a proposal, but it looks like that's going to go ahead. So that's kind of interesting. That then is. the last one, and one way is the most interesting one, is the SEC. Gary Gensler knows a lot about cryptocurrency. He used to teach a class at MIT. He had previously been head of the CFTC. He's got that futures trading background. Now he heads the Securities and Exchange Commission. And he's pretty skeptical about most cryptocurrencies, but he recognizes Bitcoin as a digital asset. In fact, maybe the only one that he's willing to recognize as a digital asset. And the question is open as to how the SEC is going to regulate all the other cryptocurrencies. But the general statements that they make and some of the specific cases that they run against companies that were really in the fraud category have been that all these cryptocurrencies are some sort of security and they ought to register with the SEC. Now, there was a, a tweet I saw just this week that looks like they may come up finally with some sort of different form of regulation that's particular, maybe a little more lightweight and particular for cryptocurrencies. But everybody's kind of been waiting to see. We also have the EFTs. And so far, the only EFTs that have been approved for Bitcoin, Ethereum, are ones that have underlying futures. There's still no underlying spot-based ETF, sorry, not EFT, but ETF uh, that's been approved yet. Those have all been rejected to date. That's excellent. And it's really a challenge to let the technology develop like it's supposed to and like it wants to while making sure that it is regulated properly and safeguards are in place. And so I understand the challenge of what these guys are trying to accomplish. So this is great. So any topics we haven't covered that we should touch on before we go? And I would just mention that getting back to the eighth list, a lot of the cryptocurrency mining, as I said, has come to the U.S. And most of this is in pools. And we don't really know which machines are being devoted to which pools. And some of these pools are global and some are in the U.S., some are elsewhere. But the new phenomena is venture capital funded Bitcoin mining companies. Mm, right, and there right. are at least a dozen of these primarily in the U.S. and Canada with capital from the Anglosphere. And what they're doing is they're going to the most efficient sources of electricity, the cheapest electricity in West Texas or Georgia or wherever they can find it, whether it's hydropower or wind or solar. And they're building efficient mining operations and they're becoming more and more important. And so they may end up pretty soon being over 10% of the total global mining just from these dozen or so companies. And uh, they're publicly traded on the U.S. stock exchange or Canadian or Australian, or in, at least in one case in, in the U.K. And so people can also participate in that way. Excellent. Good update. And we're going to come back to you with another update in a few months, but we will have another episode really in the next couple of weeks. And we have a surprise guest for you. 
that we are very excited about. So stay tuned for that one. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Until next time. Take care. Thank you, Shiro.